A Christmas Day Sermon by Samuel Davies, December 25, 1760 And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Luke 2, verses 13 and 14 This is a day which the Church of Rome and some other churches had deserved to be placed in better company have agreed to celebrate in memory of the Prince of Peace, the Savior of men, the incarnate God, Emmanuel. And I do not doubt that many convert superstition into rational and scriptural devotion and piously employ themselves in a manner acceptable to God, though they lack the sanction of divine authority for appropriating this day to a sacred use. But alas, it is generally a season of sinning, sensuality, luxury, in various forms of extravagance, as though men were not celebrating the birth of the Holy Jesus, but of Venus, a goddess of sex, or Bacchus, a god of wine, whose most sacred rites were mysteries of iniquity and debauchery. The birth of Jesus was solemnized by hosts of angels, they had their music and their songs on this occasion, but how different from those generally used among mortals. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill to men. This was their song. But as the music and dancing, the feasting and rioting, the idle songs and extravagant mirth of mortals at this season, a proper echo or response to this angelic song. I leave you to your own reflections upon this subject after I have given a hint, and I am sure if they are natural and pertinent and have a proper influence upon you, they will restrain you from running into the fashionable excesses of riot on this occasion. To remember and piously improve the incarnation of our divine Redeemer, to join the concert of angels and dwell in ecstatic meditation upon their song, this is lawful. This is a seasonable duty, every day, and consequently upon this day as well. And as Jesus improved a feast of dedication, though not of divine institution, it's a proper opportunity to exercise his ministry. When crowds of the Jews were gathered from all parts, so I'd improve this day for your instruction, since it is the custom of our country to spend it religiously or idly. Or wickedly, as different people are differently disposed. But as the seeds of superstition, which have sometimes grown up to a prodigious height, have been frequently sown and cherished by very inconsiderable incidents, I think it proper to inform you that I may guard against this danger that I do not set apart this day for public worship, as though it had any peculiar sanctity, or we were under any obligations to keep it religiously. I know no human authority which has power to make one day more holy than another, or that can bind the conscience in such cases. Special days consecrated by the mistaken piety or superstition of men, and conveyed down to us as holy, through the corrupt medium of human tradition, I think myself free to observe them or not, according to convenience and the prospect of usefulness. Like other common days on which I may lawfully carry on public worship or not, as circumstances require. And since I have so fair an opportunity and it seems necessary in order to prevent my conduct from being a confirmation of present superstition, 
or a temptation to future superstition. I shall once for all declare my sentiments more fully upon this head. But I must premise that it is far from my design to widen the differences existing among Christians, to embitter their hearts against each other, or to awaken torment controversies concerning the non-essentials of religion. And if this use should be made of what I shall say, it will be an unnatural perversion of my design. I would make every candid concession in favor of those who observe days of human institution, that can consist with truth and my own liberty. I grant that so many plausible things may be offered for the practice as may have the appearance of solid argument, even to honest inquirers after truth. I grant that I doubt not, but many are offering up acceptable devotion to God on this day, devotion proceeding from honest, believing hearts, and therefore acceptable to Him on any day, acceptable to him notwithstanding their little mistake in this affair. I grant we should in this case imitate the generous candor and forbearance of Paul in a similar case. The converts to Christianity from among the Jews long retained the prejudices of their education and thought they were still obliged even under the gospel dispensation to observe the rites and ceremonies of the law of Moses to which they had been accustomed and particularly those days which were appointed by God to be religiously kept under the Jewish dispensation. The Gentile converts, on the other hand, were free from these early prejudices of education and custom, and had imbibed more just notions of Christian liberty, looked upon these Jewish holidays as common days and no longer to be observed. This occasion, a warm dispute between these two classes of converts, and Paul interposes not so properly to determine which party was right. That was comparatively a small manner, as to bring both parties to exercise moderation and forbearance towards each other, and to put a terrible construction upon their different practices in these minor articles, and particularly to believe concerning each other that though their practices were different, yet the same principle from which they acted was the same, namely, a sincere desire to glorify and please God in a conscientious regard to what they apprehended was his will. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable manners. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Romans 14 verses 1, 5, and 6. That is, it is a conscientious regard to the Lord which is a principle upon which both parties act, though they act differently in this manner. Therefore, says the apostle, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. That is, why do you severely censor him for practicing differently in this minor affair? So whatever you believe about the thing, says he, have you a full persuasion of what is right? It's in these punctilios and ceremonials. Then, keep between yourself and God, verse 22. Keep it to yourself as a rule for your own practice. But do not impose it upon others, nor disturb the church of Christ about it. It befits us, my friends, to imitate this toleration and charity of the apostle in these minor differences. 
and God forbid I should tempt any of you to forsake so noble an example. But then the example of the same apostle will authorize us modestly to propose our own sentiments and the reasons of our practice, and to warn people from laying a great stress upon ceremonials and superstitious observances. This he does, particularly to the Galatians, who not only kept the Jewish holidays, but placed a great part of their religion in the observance of them. You observe days and months, and times and years. Therefore, says he, I am afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Galatians 4, 10 and 11. The commandments of God have often been made void by the traditions of men. And human inventions have often been more religiously observed than divine institutions. And when this was the case, Paul was warm in opposing even ceremonial mistakes. Having permitted this, which I look upon as much more important than the decision of the question, I proceed to show you the reasons why I would not religiously observe days of human appointment. In commemoration of Christ and the saints, what I have to say shall be particularly pointed at what is called Christmas Day, but may be easily applied to all other holy days instituted by men. The first reason I shall offer is that I would take my religion just as I find it in my Bible, without any imaginary improvements or supplements of human invention. All the ordinances which God has been pleased to appoint, I would honestly endeavor to observe in the most sacred manner. But when ignorant, presuming mortals take upon themselves to improve upon divine institutions, to make that a part of religion which God has left indifferent. In short, when they would mingle something of their own with the pure religion of the Bible, then I must be excused from obedience and beg permission to content myself with the old, plain, simple religion of the Bible. Now that there is not the least appearance in all the Bible of the divine appointment of Christmas, to celebrate the birth of Christ, is granted by all parties, and the divine authority is not so much as pretended for it. Therefore, a Bible Christian is not at all bound to observe it. Secondly, the Christian Church for at least 300 years did not observe any day in commemoration of the birth of Christ. For this we have the testimony of the primitive fathers themselves. Thus, Clemens, Alexandrinus, who lived about the year 194, quote, We are commanded to worship and honor him who we are persuaded is a word and our Savior and ruler, and through him the Father not upon certain or particular earth-select days as some others do, but constantly practicing this all our life and in every proper way. End quote. Chrysostom, who lived in the 4th century, has these words, It is not yet ten years since this day, that is, Christmas, was plainly known to us. And he observes a custom was brought to Constantinople from Rome. Now since this day was not religiously observed in the church in the first and purest ages, but was introduced as superstitions increased and Christianity began to degenerate very fast into popery, ought not we to imitate the purity of these primitive times and retain none of the superstitious observances of more corrupt ages? Thirdly, if a day should be religiously observed in memory of the birth of Christ, it ought to be that day on which he was born. But that day, and even the month and the year are altogether uncertain. The scriptures do not determine this point of chronology. 
and perhaps they are silent on purpose to prevent all temptation to the superstitious observance of it. Just as the body of Moses was secretly buried, and his grave concealed to guard the Israelites from the danger of idolizing it, chronologers are also divided upon the point, and even the ancients are not agreed. The learned generally suppose that Christ was born two or three years before the common reckoning. And as to the month, some suppose it was in September and some in June, and they imagine it was very unlikely that he was born in the cold, wintry months of December, because we read that at the time of his birth, shepherds were out in the field watching their flocks by night, which is not probable at that season of the year. The Christian Epoch a reckoning time from the birth of Christ was not introduced until about the year 500, and it was not generally used until the reign of Charles the Great about the year 800, or a little above 900 years ago. This must occasion a great uncertainty both as to the year, month, and day. But why do I dwell so long upon this? It must be universally confessed that the day of his birth is quite uncertain. Nay, it is certain that it is not that which has been kept in commemoration of it. To convince you of this, I need only put you in mind of the late parliamentary correction of our computation of time by introducing the new style, by which Christmas is eleven days sooner than it was accustomed to be. And yet this chronological blunder still continues in the public prayers of some who give thanks to God that Christ is born as upon this day. And while this prayer was offered up in England and Virginia on the 25th of December old style, other countries that followed the new style were solemnly declaring in their thanksgiving to God that Christ was born eleven days sooner. That is, on the 14th day of December, I therefore conclude that neither this day or any other was ever intended to be observed for this purpose. Finally, Superstition is a very growing evil, and therefore the first beginnings of it ought to be prevented. Many things that were at first introduced with a pious design have grown up gradually into the most enormous superstition and idolatry in after ages. The ancient Christians, for example, had such a veneration for the pious martyrs that they preserved a lock of hair or some little memorial of them and this laid the foundation for the expensive sale and stupid idolizing of the relics of the saints in popish countries. They also celebrated their memory by observing the days of their martyrdom. But as the number of the martyrs and saints real or imaginary increased, the saints' days are also multiplied to an extravagant degree, and hardly left any days in the year for any other purpose. And as they had more saints and days in the year, they dedicated the first of November for them all under the title of All Saints' Day. But if the saints must be thus honored, then certainly much more ought Jesus Christ. This seemed a natural inference, and accordingly the superstitious devotees appointed one day to celebrate his birth, another his baptism, another his death, another the day of Pentecost, in an endless list that I have not time now to mention. The apostles also must be put into the calendar, and thus almost all the days in the year were consecrated by superstition, and hardly any left for the ordinary labors of life. Thus the people are taught to be idle the greatest part of their time, 
and so indisposed to labor on the few days that are still allowed them for that purpose. This has almost ruined some popish countries, particularly the Pope's dominions in the fine country of Italy, once the richest and best improved in the world. Edison, Burnett, and other travelers inform us that everything bears the appearance of poverty, notwithstanding all the advantages of soil and climate, and that this is chiefly owing to the superstition of the people who spend the most of their time, his holy days. And if you look over the calendar of the Church of England, you will find that the festivals in one year amount to 31, the fasts to no less than 95, to which add the 52 Sundays in every year, and the whole will make 178, so that only 187 days will be left in the whole year for the common labors and purposes of life. And whether the poor could procure a subsistence for themselves and their families by the labor of so few days, and whether it is not a yoke that neither we nor our fathers are able to bear, I leave you to judge. It is true that but very few of these feasts and fasts are now observed, even by the members of the established church. But then they are still in their calendar and canons and binding upon them by the authority of the church. And as far as they do not comply with them, so far they are dissenters. And in this and in many other respects they are generally dissenters, though they do not share with us in the infamy of the name. Now, since the beginnings of superstitious inventions and the worship of God are so dangerous in their outcome, and may grow up into such enormous extravagance, we ought to shun the danger by adhering to the simplicity of the Bible religion, and not presume to make more days or things holy than the all-wise God has been pleased to sanctify. He will be satisfied with the religious observance of his own institutions, and why should not we? It is certainly enough that we are as religious as he requires us, and all our will-worship is liable to that confounding rejection. Who has required this at your hands? Isaiah 1 verse 12 I now proceed to what is more delightful and profitable, the sublime anthem of the angels, Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, good will to men. What a happy night with this to the poor shepherds, though exposed to the damps and darkness of midnight, and keeping their painful watches in the open field, an illustrious angel clothed in light which kindled midnight into noon came upon them, or suddenly hovered over them in the air, and the glory of the Lord that is a bright, refulgent light, the usual emblem of its presence shone round about them. No wonder that the poor shepherds were struck with horror and overwhelmed at the sight of so glorious a phenomenon. But when God strikes his people with terror, it is often an introduction to some signal blessing. And they are oftentimes made sore afraid like the shepherds even with the displays of its glories. The first appearance even of the great deliverer may seem like that of a great destroyer, but he will at length make himself known as he is, and allay the fears of his people. So the gentle angel cheers and supports the trembling shepherds. Fear not, he says. You need not tremble, but rejoice at my appearance. For behold, observe and wonder, 
I bring you from heaven by order from its sovereign good tidings of great joy, the best that was ever published in mortal ears. And not only to you, not only to a few private people or families, not only to the Jewish nation, but good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, to Gentiles as well as Jews, to all nations, tribes, and languages, to all the various ranks of men, to king and subjects, to rich and poor, to free and slave. Therefore, let it circulate through the world and resound from shore to shore. And what if this news that is introduced was so sublime in transporting a preface? It is this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Unto you mortals, unto you miserable sinners is born a Savior, a Savior from sin and ruin, a Savior of no low or common character, but Christ a promised Messiah, anointed with the Holy Spirit and invested with the high office of mediator, Christ the Lord the Lord and ruler of heaven and earth and universal nature. He is born no longer represented by dark types and prophecies, but actually entered in the world. Born this day. The long-expected day has at length arrived. The prophecies are accomplished, and the fullness of time has come, born in the city of David in Bethlehem, and therefore the seed and lineage of David according to the prophecies. Though he is a person of such eminence, Christ the Lord is now a feeble infant just born, the son born, and a child given. He is mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, verse 6. The condescension of the angel and the joyful tidings he brought no doubt recovered the shepherds from their consternation and emboldened them to lift up their faces. And how was their joy heightened that they were chosen and appointed by heaven to be the first visitants to this new-born prince? This shall be a sign to you, said the angel, by which you may know this divine infant. From others, what shall be the sign? Shall it be that they will find him in a palace surrounded with all the grandeur and majesty of courts and attended by the emperors, kings, and nobles of the earth, lying in a bed of down? and dressed in silks and gold and jewels. This might be expected if we considered the dignity of his person. It would be infinite condescension for him to be born even in such circumstances as these. But these are not the characteristics of the incarnate God. No, says the angel, they shall be assigned to you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, lying in a feeding trough, for animals, Luke 2.12. Astonishing, who could expect a newborn son of God to be there? There, lying in straw, surrounded only with oxen and horses, and waited upon only by a feeble, solitary mother far from home, among unkind, regardless strangers, who would not allow her room in the inn, even in her painful hour. Perhaps her poverty disabled her from bearing her expenses in the ordinary way, and therefore she must take up her lodging in a stable. In such circumstances of abasement did the Lord of glory enter our world. In these circumstances he was seen by angels, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, who were accustomed to behold him in another form, in all the glories of the heavenly world. And how strange a sight must this be! 
a bright display of his love to the guilty sons of men. The angel, who was a willing messenger of these glad tidings, did not descend from heaven alone. He appears to have been a commandant of an army of angels that attended him on this grand occasion. For suddenly there was with him a multitude of the heavenly host, or as it might be rendered of soldiery of heaven. The angels are not a confused or regular body, or unconnected independent individuals, but a well-disposed system of beings with proper subordinations, all marshaled in the ranks under proper commanders. Hence, they are called thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, Colossians 1 verse 16. We read of angels and archangels, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. Of Michael and his angels, Revelation 12 verse 7. They are called in a military style the Lord's Army, Psalm 103, 21, Psalm 148, 2. In the Army of Heaven, Daniel 4, verse 35, Revelation 19, verse 14. They signify the order established among them and also their strength and unanimity to execute the commands of their sovereign, to repel the dragon and his angels and defend the feeble heirs of salvation on whom they condescend to wait. Order and subordination is still retained even among the fallen angels in the kingdom of darkness. Hence we read of the prince of the devils, Matthew 9, 34. The dragon and his angels, Revelation 12, 7. Legions of devils, Mark 5, 9, which was the division of the Roman army, something like that of a regiment among us. Now a regiment of the heavenly militia descended with their officer to solemnize and publish the birth of their lord. And he took upon him our nature. And no sooner had their commander delivered his message, and they immediately joined with one voice, filling all the air with their heavenly music, praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, goodwill to men. The language is abrupt like that of a full heart. To such as in short, unconnected and rapid, expressive of the ecstasy of their minds, Glory to God in the highest. This deservedly leads a song. It is of more importance in itself in the estimate of angels and of all competent judges and even the salvation of men. And the first and chief cause of joy and praise from the birth of a Savior is that he shall bring glory to God through him. As a proper medium, the divine perfection shall shine forth with new and augmented splendor. Through him, sinners shall be saved in a way that will advance the honor of the divine perfections in government, or if any of them perish, their punishment will be more illustriously display the glory of their offended sovereign. Oh, what wonders does Jehovah perform in prosecution of this method of salvation? What wonders of pardoning mercy and sanctifying grace? What miracles of glory and blessedness does he form out of the dust and the polluted fragments of human nature? What monuments of his own glorious perfections does he erect through all the extensive regions of heaven? From these wonderful works of his, the glory of his own name breaks forth upon the worlds of angels and men in one bright and clouded day, which shall never be obscured in night but grow more and more illustrious through the endless ages of eternity. Of this, the choir of angels were sensible at the birth of Christ, and therefore they shout aloud in ascriptions of glory to God. 
It was especially on this account that they rejoiced in this great event. And all believers rejoice in it principally on this account, too. Glory to God. It's the first note in the song of angels. And hallowed be your name. That is, let your name be sanctified or glorified. It's the first petition and the prayer of men. The glory of God should always be nearest our hearts. To this, everything should give way. And we should rejoice in other things and even in our own salvation as they tend to promote this. The next article of this angelic song is Peace on Earth. Peace, the rebel man with his offended sovereign. Peace with angels. Peace with conscience. Peace between man and man. Universal peace on earth, that region of discord and war. Peace with God to rebel man. The illustrious prince now born comes to make up the breach and reconcile sinners to their offended sovereign. He is a great peacemaker who shall subdue the enmity of the carnal mind and reduce the revolted sons of Adam to a willing subjection to the rightful Lord. He will bring thousands of disloyal hearts to love God above all, which were accustomed to love almost everything more than him. He will reconcile them to the laws of his government in the practice of universal obedience and holiness. He will set on foot a treaty of peace in the ministry of the gospel and send out his ambassadors to beseech the rebels in his stead to be reconciled to God. O happy peace, O blessed peacemaker, who puts an end to so fatal and unnatural a war and brings a creator and his creatures, the offended sovereign and his rebellious subjects, into mutual friendship again, after the grand breach, that seemed likely never to be made up, and indeed never could be made up but by so great and powerful a mediator, a mediator of infinite dignity, merit, and authority, able to remove all obstructions in the way of both parties, Again, this proclamation of peace may include peace with conscience. When man commenced an enemy to his maker, he became an enemy to himself. His own conscience took up arms against him and is perpetually fighting the cause of its Lord. But now the guilt to pass in may be washed away from the conscience with the pacified blood of Jesus and all his clamors silenced by his all-satisfying righteousness. And now the peace will be preserved and the contracting of new guilt prevented by the sanctifying influence of the grace of this newborn prince. His grace shall change disloyal hearts and reform rebellious lives. And those shall enjoy the approbation of their conscience who were accustomed to sweat and agonize under his tormenting accusations. Thus, self-tormenting sinners shall be reconciled to themselves and peace in their own breasts shall be a perennial source of happiness, a happiness which nothing earthly gives nor can destroy, the soul's calm sunshine and the heartfelt joy. Therefore let all the world be melted and molded into love. Let the wolf and the lion put on the nature of the lamb, and let nothing hurt or destroy through all the earth. Let nation no more lift up sword against nation, let them beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and let them learn war no more 
For of him it is foretold, and in his days abundance of peace shall flourish, so long as the moon endures, Psalm 72, verse 7. We may learn here how we ought to celebrate the birth of Christ. Celebrate it like angels, not with balls and assemblies, not with reveling and carousing and all the extravagances that are usual at this season, as if you were celebrating the birth of Venus or Bacchus or some patron of iniquity, not with the sounds of bells, muskets, and cannons, and the other demonstrations of joy upon occasions of a civil nature. Some of these are not innocent upon any occasion, and have a direct tendency to make men still more thoughtless and giddy, and to prevent the blessed effects of the illustrious birth. You will all grant, no doubt, that pious joy ought to be expressed in a pious manner, that the usual mirth, festivity and gaiety of a birthday, in honor of our earthly sovereign are not proper expressions of joy for the birth of a spiritual savior, a savior from this vain world, a savior from sin and hell. Therefore I say, celebrate it as the angels did, giving glory to God in the highest, in your songs of praise, giving them glory by dwelling upon the wonders of redemption in delightful meditation, by giving him your thoughts and affections, and by a life of devotion and universal obedience. Celebrate the birth of this great Prince of Peace by accepting that peace which angels proclaimed. Give a welcome reception to this glorious stranger. Do not turn him out of doors as the Bethlehemites did, but entertain him in your hearts. Let every faculty of your souls open to receive him. Lift up your heads, O your gates. Be you lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. I'll let every heart cry, Come in, you, who are blessed by the Lord. To conclude, what encouragement may this angelic proclamation afford to trembling, desponding penitents? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. For to you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. But do not your hearts bring up within you with the news, as someone heard of a crowd of criminals under condemnation, confined in one dungeon and upon a messenger's arriving from their king, and proclaiming a pardon, Dale rushed out so eagerly to receive the pardon, and see the publisher of the joyful news that they trod and crushed one another to death. And shall there be no such pressing and crowding to Jesus Christ in this assembly today? Shall there be no such eagerness among us to receive a pardon from his hands? Alas! Will any of you turn this greatest blessing of heaven into a curse? Was it your destroyer who was born when the angels sung the birth of a Savior? Indeed, if you continue to neglect him, you will find him such to you, and it would have been better for you that neither you nor he had ever been born. Even the birth of the Prince of Peace proclaims eternal war against you. I therefore now beseech you in his stead to be reconciled to him. Amen.